We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Mani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Mani. And we begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You know, one of the most beautiful things I believe in all the world is the ministry. I remember when I, when I first got saved, I had a guy who was mentoring me and he was just kind of pouring into me. And I'll never forget, for whatever reason, these words just kind of stick in my heart. He said, there ain't nothing like the ministry. You know, there's nothing like serving the Lord. Um, you know, there's nothing like serving God's people. There's nothing like seeing people saved and sanctified and, you know, headed for heaven. It's just awesome to pull people out of the fire and to see them, you know, marriages mended and addictions gone. It's just so beautiful to see the ministry. You know, but there's a lot of people out there that are claiming to be ministers. There's a lot of guys, you can watch them on television, you can hear them on the radio, you might, you know, be offered their books. And, and there's like a, a huge misconception regarding the ministry and so sometimes it's hard to figure out, well, what's a true ministry? What is real? What is valid and not? And, and so it's kind of cool. What was going on in Corinth, if you guys remember, is the Corinthians were coming against Paul, even though he had planted the church, even though he was such a, a beautiful and powerful apostle of Jesus Christ, clearly called by him. You know, because of that, the enemy, of course, would then oppose him, right? And so there were things going on in the congregation. Uh, false prophets had gone in and planted seeds of discord, trying to turn their hearts away from Paul. And so Paul has to write this letter. Most of them had come to that place of being on the same page, but there were still some of them that were still fighting it. They were resisting the leadership of the Lord, right? And so Paul writes this letter, and, uh, and he just begins to address the various issues that are going on there in Corinth. One of them being that they were resisting Paul. They were just saying, hey, you don't got letters like these guys that are coming in. You know, and perhaps there were some individuals there. They had these nice letters from, I don't know, the Sanhedrin or other churches or whatever, saying how wonderful they were. Paul didn't have any letters. And so... Paul kind of deals with that here. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or, or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You know, the backdrop is that even though Paul was called by God, the division had crept into the congregation, corrupting them. And so they actually questioned whether or not he was really a valid apostle. It was a pressing issue, and you're going to see in this letter the word commend is eight times in this letter, right? 
And you guys know what I'm talking about. You have any of you ever used like a letter of recommendation? Maybe you needed that to get a job. They recommended you. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 16, uh, verse 1 and 2, Paul wrote a letter of recommendation for a gal named Phoebe. Uh, she was a faithful servant of the Lord. Uh, when you read Acts chapter 18, verse 27, they wrote a letter of recommendation for Apollo, saying that he really did love the Lord. And so, you know, nothing wrong with that. Today we sometimes receive these types of letters in the mail. You know, we'll get a letter from wherever, Calvary Chapel, you know, uh, South Bay, saying these guys are, are right on ministers. They're not there to fleece the flock. They've come and they've served at our church, and they're, they love the Lord, and they're right on. And so I would just want to encourage you to, to accept their ministry. And so there's nothing wrong with letters of commendation. They have their place. But here's the thing. Paul should not have even begun to need a letter of recommendation, either to them or from them to minister to either place. That's what Paul says right there. Do we, do we need letters of recommendation? It's like... Are you serious? Are you serious? So Paul then, he begins to deal with this. And, uh, and it's kind of cool, you know, because we get to deal now with, well, how can we know if someone's a true ministry? You know, um, here's a few things to consider. As you guys are watching that guy on TV or whatever, you go to a church, and it doesn't even matter the name of the church anymore. You know, they might have some type of label that you feel comfortable with. It doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't always mean it's a true ministry of Almighty God. Because, you know, the, the church, uh, there's an apostasy going on. I mean, is it really the Lord? I know, is it really? The, they got a crowd, Manny. There's, you know, 10,000 people that go to their church doesn't mean it's the Lord. You know, let me share with you a few things, how you can know uh, it's a true ministry. A few things to consider. Number one is their creed. Their creed. And by that is, what do they believe? Is their preaching, is their teaching lining up with the Word of God? First uh, John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so you got a guy preaching, and you got to test him. He's just a man. Is what he says is his word lining up with God's word. And you know, when Paul went to Berea, that's exactly what happened. The Bereans tested everything he said. I want to encourage you guys to always have that heart. That's why it's so important that you know your Bible. That's why it's so important that you read your Bible. You read your Bible. You read your Bible. Don't just open it up when you come on Sundays or whatever, you know? Just don't just open it up every once in a while, occasionally, flippantly. No. You know, when I first got saved, uh, I didn't need anybody to hammer it into me that I need to be reading my Bible like crazy. And I just read it every year. I'd read the whole Bible. Every year I'd read the whole Bible plus some. I want to encourage you to do that because when you know your Bible then you can test what people are saying listen to Bible studies man really test the teaching it's important because there are so many false prophets out there 
And I also want to say this to you, that I think it's important, because sometimes we'll get questions about that person or that person, and, and, they'll, and they'll say, well, I heard a couple of studies from them, and they seem good. But see, it's not just a portion of their message, it's their entire message. You have to listen to everything they say. You have to test them all the time. You know, how much poison does it take to kill a person? You know, you listen to this gal over here, uh, Joyce Myers, and you're like, yeah, you know, she's some, I, mean, I know most of you know that she's kind of weird, but you know, um, some people say, well, I listened to her, and she was so motivating and positive, and, and she didn't say anything doctrinally off, because you heard, you know, one lesson or whatever, but then when you start looking at the full message that's going out, it's not the Lord. How much poison does it take to kill a person? You know, you got a whole big cheeseburger, right? And then you put a little bit of cyanide in there. You ate, oh, the cheeseburger was good, but it was that drop of poison that will kill you. You know, I, I was doing a little research on this because I'm weird. I don't know. I, I don't know anything about poison. How much poison does it take to kill a person? The police are probably going to come after me because I did a research on this, right? Um, eight leaves of hemlock, just eight little leaves is fatal. That's how Socrates was executed. There's another uh, uh, thing called asinite. It comes from the plant mokshud, and all it takes is a touch. All you have to do is touch that plant. It's so absorbent that it becomes fatal. Now, the emperor Claudius is said to have been poisoned by his wife Agrippina, and she used this in a plate of mushrooms, right? And, and, and again, sometimes you listen to these guys, 95% of what they're saying is right on. But then comes the preaching of poison, the preaching that kills. Uh, for example, if you go over to 2 Corinthians, uh, go over to your right to chapter 11. Look at, at verse um, 3. He says, For I fear that somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit by which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And, and the Mormons, they preach a different Jesus. And some people say, well, they're Christians. And the JWs, the Jehovah Witnesses, they preach a different Jesus. And some say they're Christians. No, they're not. Because they preach a different Jesus. The Mormons say that Jesus was a spirit brother of Lucifer. That's not my Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus was the first creation of Jehovah God. That's not my Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so, you know, you listen. Oh, it sounds good. It's motivation. They're good people. Yeah, all that might be true. But you have to test their creed. What are they really teaching? And so, you know, as you guys are listening and you're learning the Word of God, you know, and you're wanting to find out whether or not that ministry is a valid ministry, number one, the creed has to be right. Number two, their character has to be right. If you would, go to Matthew chapter 7. You remember what Jesus said here in Matthew 7 and verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. 
Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So you want to know whether or not that ministry is valid. Uh, you got to check their creed and you have to, to the best of your ability, check their character. Um, you know, are they bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control? You know, because here's the thing. If this man is a false prophet, then he's going to get cut down and he's going to get thrown into the fire. And everyone who's following that false prophet will follow him into the fire. And that's why it's so important that we make sure that whoever we're listening to, whoever we're sitting under, whatever ministry that we're receiving, that we know it's, it's of the Lord. I mean, not that they're perfect people, because there's no perfect person. But when you look at their life, there's a general understanding that they have the character of Jesus Christ. You know, some of these guys, and it just breaks my heart, you know, they don't have that character. And you've got a, got a lot of guys nowadays, they're teaching health, wealth, and prosperity. That's their creed. It's wrong. They believe that every Christian, if you're a Christian, then you should be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And that's not true. Even Jesus, he didn't have, you know, the, the, the nice clothes. He didn't own a home. He had nowhere to lay his head. Even Jesus was poor. Paul had his times where he did good, had his times where he did bad financially. So we know that's not doctrinally correct. Paul himself had problems. Uh, the Bible talks about how he, uh, he had a thorn in the flesh. Uh, Timothy was sick. I mean, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, right? God will always provide for your needs, amen? Not your greeds. You're like, Lord, just an Apple watch. That's all I want, Lord. <laughs> Because I will use it for ministry. <laughs> and the Lord's like, nah, you don't need that, you know? Oh, it's just a Harley, just one Harley. And God's saying, no, you know? But these guys are on TV, they, they're getting rich. They are getting rich. And, it, and it's sickening, it really is. You know, these guys, these so-called ministers, if the so-called minister is living high on the hog while the people that are supporting such a lifestyle are living paycheck to paycheck, if that, then something's wrong. I mean, there are some individuals in the ministry that are disqualified. They shouldn't be preaching because they're living in sexual sin or they've been married multiple times without repentance. I mean, when you read the Bible, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, I buffet my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. So, when we're trying to find out whether a ministry is valid, we have to check their creed, we have to check their conduct. And then the third thing is, I think we just kind of got to see, are, are, are there any Christians there? <laughs> Is anybody getting saved? Is anybody becoming more and more like Jesus? Back in our text in 1 Corinthians 3, this is what he emphasizes here. 
He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves in verse 1? Or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or, or letters of commendation from you? You know, he says, no, you are our epistle. Written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ. Ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. I mean, what he was saying is that, you know, you guys are my living letter, so to speak. You guys are the epistles. And you guys know what epistles are, right? They're the wives of the apostles. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, you guys are the living letters, right? He says, you know, look at what God has done. I mean, when I went to Corinth, Paul said, there wasn't a church there. And, and by the grace of God, I, I was able to plant a church in such a, uh, an ugly city that was just overrun with sin. Can't you see that in one sense you're, you're the letter of recommendation? You're the letter of commendation? And I, and I love the way that he says it. He, he makes it not just like, you know, technical truth, but he makes it such a personal thing. He said, you're the letter. And you're written, you know, not with ink, but you're written by the Spirit, right? Not on stone, but on tablets of heart. And, and by the way, you're written on my heart. Oh, we don't think Paul's, you know, for us. What are you talking about? You're written on his heart. Paul was just saying, I mean, seriously, you want a letter of commendation? You want, you know, the government to issue some letter of ordination? Is that what it's going to take? You know, Calvary Chapels, one of the beautiful things about Calvary Chapels is they're never into that. It's not about the education, although we do need to know the Bible. It's all about the calling of God on someone's life, where God will take someone, a knucklehead, an ex-drug addict, someone who can't read, someone who's whatever, they're about to kill their wife. God comes and saves them. God qualifies them. God commands them. That's how you know it's the Lord. Not just somebody who has a degree or they're a good communicator or there's a crowd. It's the Lord. And it's important for us to understand that. I think that in looking at this right here, he's just saying, you guys, it's the fruit of the ministry. And let me just say this to you. I think you need, and I know there's more than this, but you need all three of these. I mean, you can't just have a guy who's got the right creed or a guy who has the right character. I mean, although those are two good things, it doesn't mean necessarily that he's called. Is there fruit of ministry? Is there people growing in their relationship with the Lord? Is it Christ-centered? Are people getting saved? Are they growing? Like the church in Corinth. You guys are fruit. And see, when God does a work in God's timing, he'll, he'll pick a man, he'll pick a city, he'll pick the date, and he'll start a work. I mean, even in Almani, there are a few times where guys come started try to start a Calvary. It didn't, it didn't work. It was God's perfect timing. It's the Lord. You know, when you look at this right here, I think it's so cool. An interesting thing in this passage right here. He says clearly in verse 3, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink. The word written 
is not the normal word that he would use in the Greek. It's actually the word carved. He said, you know, literally like Wiest says, uh, you are permanently engraved in our hearts. You're carved in our hearts. And I just love that because in one sense, Paul's just saying it's not just on paper, it's personal. It's not just intellectual, it's personal. It's not just academic in the mind, it's in the heart, right? And this is the real deal. What he says right here is, I know that I'm called. I know that I'm commissioned. I I know that I'm real. That's what he's saying right here. I know that I'm commended. I know that I'm commissioned. So when you hear someone say that, you might then say, well, that guy's kind of prideful, right? You might say that. And it's hard. It's hard sometimes to discern that. But right away, Paul, he deals with that in in verse 4. Again, we have such trust through Christ toward God. In other words, he's saying, I really am called. I believe this because of the work that God has done. But he says there in verse 5, but not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. You know, so Paul is saying, I love you guys, man. You're on my heart. You're carved in my heart. And I believe Paul was real. He was like Jesus, which is what we should be. And when the Lord did the work there, is this so awesome? And he's just saying, not to boast in any way, but he's just saying, by, by the grace of God, I, he has allowed me to be a minister. To be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, minister is that Greek word diakonos. So we get our word deacon from it. It means that one who runs the errands of a commander. And that's all uh, pastors are. That's all, you know, preachers are, teachers are, leaders are. We're servants. We're supposed to be servant leaders. And he said, that, that's who I am. But it wasn't because I had it all together. It wasn't because I was worthy. It wasn't because I was able. It wasn't because I was good or good enough at anything whatsoever. It wasn't because I had something to bring to the table or I had so much to offer, you know, whatever, Bible knowledge or experience or whatever, good conduct. No. Our sufficiency, he says, is from God. It's not from us. You know, it's interesting when you look at the different translations here. One uses the word competent. We're not competent. Another says adequate. Uh, we're, not, we're not adequate. Uh, the NLT uses the word qualified. We're, we're not qualified. I mean, we are not sufficient. We are not competent. We are not adequate. We are not qualified. Nothing about us. Other than God rolling up his sleeve and picking the slimiest saint and saying, let me use him. So that everybody can understand that it's not by your goodness. It's by the grace of God. And even though you might change and you might become more and more like Jesus, it's still not your goodness. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. And he makes us sufficient. And 
And he puts in us. It's kind of interesting. Paul even says, By the grace of God, I labored more abundantly than they all, but not me, but the grace of God working in me. I mean, it's just so cool. You know, when the Lord gets a hold of somebody, what he does is he gives them a work ethic. What he does is he gives them a servant's heart. And I love to see that. I love to see guys, they're there. They're, you call them up, man, they're on the turn of a dime. They will serve Jesus in any way. Need me to scrub toilets? I'm there. Need me to vacuum, empty the trash? I don't have to teach. I'm there. You need me to hold somebody's coattails? I'm there. But you want to know something? The Lord did that in their heart. It's the Lord. And, and that's what he's saying right here. You know, God made us sufficient. Well, how did he make you sufficient? By giving you a servant's heart. See? And Paul says that's, that's who we are, you know? I mean, the word in the Greek language, sufficient, it means enough or worthy or able or fit. You know, we're not enough. We're not worthy. We're not able. You guys remember this? We are disabled. <laughs> Can you guys capture that, man? I mean, we are disabled. We can't. We are unworthy. You guys know that, huh? What, do, what does man have to offer? I mean, you got a, a, a husband and a wife, and they're over here, and they're on the verge of divorce. And so they sit down with a counselor. I get to sit down with them. And, you know, we get to talk about the scriptures, what to do, and then we get to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, how you can actually do what you're supposed to do. I mean, we could, you know, tell them to, you know, quote scriptures, memorize it. We could quote it to them and all that kind of stuff. But unless the Spirit of God touches that husband's heart and that wife's heart, they won't get saved. They won't surrender. What can I do? I mean, if I was a good manipulator, I can make someone change on the outside. But that doesn't change anyone's destiny. You know, like John the Baptist said, he said, I indeed baptize with water, but there comes one after me, mightier than I, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I mean, what can man do? I can teach, I can speak, but my words do not penetrate the heart. God's word does. By the Spirit of God, he teaches He's our teacher. That's why the Bible says, don't let anyone be called teacher. He's your teacher. And what we find is that Paul is saying, not that we're sufficient of ourselves because we know the way ministry works. We've got nothing to offer. But our sufficiency does come from God. And he will give us a servant's heart and he will tell us what to do. Just teach the Bible and pray and try to live the life and love the people. And I'll do the rest. How many of us, I mean, you know, you guys, we read to the Bible. We've seen the stories of people like Moses, you know, who, who was unable. Or Peter, who admitted that he was sinful. Or Isaiah, who said he was awful, right? Remember when God commissioned Moses? Uh, God said, hey, I want to send you to Pharaoh and you're going to set my people free. It would almost be like God peering to us and saying, okay, you're going to go to Obama, Manny, and you're going to, you know, shake things up. I'm like, man, I don't even know how I'm going to get past the, the gates right there, Lord. 
And, you know, we would doubt right away. Who am I? Who am I? What if God chose one of you? I want you to go to Obama. I want you to go to the, whoever, the world leader in Iran or some country. I mean, wouldn't you kind of feel like, uh, me? That's how Moses felt. You know, when we read in Exodus 3 and 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You know what God said? He said, I will certainly be with you. And what happened? God used Moses to set the people free. See, we're qualified. We have the sufficiency because he's with us. And it's just so beautiful. Later on in Exodus 4, 10 through 12, Moses is still fighting God on this, right? And he said, Oh Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue, and Lord, I stutter. I mean, God, and it's beautiful, God had brought Moses to a place where he humbled him. And sometimes people need to get humbled. You know, that Chuck Smith, it was kind of cool. He said when he came out of college, uh, he was ready to conquer the world. He really was. And, and you want to know something? He was a great student. Um, even Dr., I think it was Dr. Van Cleve said that when he wasn't able to do the class, there were times where he had to leave. Sometimes he would just let Pastor Chuck do it. And now he was a student at the time. That's how good of a student he was. But when he came out of ministry, I mean, he came out of school and entered into ministry, he just thought, what's well, going to happen, right? But it took 17 years of God bringing him to that place of humility, which leads us to dependence, that then allowed him to be usable in God's hands. Some people think, well, I've got everything. I've got the whole tools. God, just look at me. I'm the package. <laughs> And God says, oh, let me humble you. And that's what God did with Moses after 40 years. And when you read Josephus and you read about Moses, he was a, 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 a conqueror. I mean, according to history, he won battles. He was offered the, the throne of Pharaoh. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that he, he refused it. I mean, he was on top of the world. He learned how to write. He had all the education. And, I mean, he knew the battle plans. But for 40 years, God put him in the wilderness, a place and a job that Egyptians despised, being a shepherd. And it was during those 40 years that God made him humble and therefore usable. Right? I mean, and we see the same thing with Peter. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Good. You, you believe that about yourself? You believe that about yourself? Do you acknowledge your own wickedness and wretchedness? Do you believe that about yourself, that you're not better than everyone else? Have you come to that place where you acknowledge that I'm not going to look down on people? Peter, you depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Okay, good. Get up. I'm going to use your life because that's the heart that I need. I mean, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, you know, woe is me. I, I am done. I'm undone. For I'm a, a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And God says, go to the altar. You know, Jesus died for you. He's going to touch your lips with that coal. 
And then I want you to go to a stubborn people. I mean, it's so cool when you realize that the Lord uses those who acknowledge their insufficiencies. This is ministry, you guys. This is ministry. You know, ministry is that place where we understand, you know, the creed and the character, you know, and when we understand that the Christians, the fruit, this is ministry when we understand that in and of ourselves we are unable to do this. Remember John 15, 5? I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus said. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Nothing? No. And that's a perfect parallel passage because he's talking about the context of fruit of ministry, right? And so we read in verse 6 again, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You know, and we're going to get into a section now where Paul is going to deal with uh, the, the ministry of the Spirit. So first we studied ministry proof. Then we studied ministry sufficiency. Now we're going to deal with the ministry of the Spirit. And it's so important that we understand this about ministry. Because one of the things about our fallen nature is it has a tendency to digress to the ministry of the law or the ministry of the letter, or the ministry of legalism, and not the ministry of the Spirit. You guys, this is what we're doing. I know you guys love the Lord. How many of you here want to serve the Lord? I mean, I know you do. I've seen the, the ways you, you guys are doing it. Make sure you understand this part right here, right? We're ministers of the new covenant. And again, I think Paul here is dealing with some of the false teaching that was going on there as well. Some people were wanting to go back to Judaism. For whatever reason, even believers have the tendency to go backwards, back to religion, back to the law, back to a legal relationship where it's performance-oriented. For whatever reason, they have it in their hearts. There's a tendency to go back to Egypt. And the false teachers were pulling them back, and they're appointing them to the old covenant. And Paul says, no, God's doing a new work. It's a new covenant. It had been prophesied in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, even in the old covenant, even right there, book of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God says, but I'm going to do a new covenant. I'm going to do a new work. You know, the old work, the old covenant, it killed uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, it talks about that. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so the letter was a list of rules and regulations. That was the old covenant. Uh, even the Ten Commandments, in one sense, was that. And it said this, the old law said that if you keep this list, you will live. If you don't, you will die. You know, it's real simple. 
the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law in Israel, the primary purpose was actually to point out that we can't keep the law. It was intended to point us to the Messiah and the coming of Jesus Christ. You see? And so here, in looking at this, and we'll, we'll kind of go through this a little, a little faster, we're going to close with this, that, that Paul, what he does is he compares and then he contrasts the old and the new. Look what he says in, in verse 7. First, there's the comparison. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? And so he says right here, they were both glorious. The old was glorious, but the new is more glorious. The old was the ministry of death, but the new is the ministry of the Spirit. And the Spirit is here today. That's what he's doing. The, mirror, the Spirit is here gathering a bride for Christ. You know, the old covenant was glorious. I was talking to my son about this yesterday. He was telling me, Dad, that's pretty cool to see. You know, Moses would go in and spend time with the Lord, and then he would come out and his face glowed. And it was so glowing. I think of Bob. I don't know why I think of Celestial Bob. It was just glowing, man. And, and it, it was so, like, radiant that the people were afraid to look at him. They're like, whoa, that's a trip. I can't even look at him. He was just so glorious, right? And, uh, and, and so he, what he ended up doing was, we're going to see it later, he put a veil over his face partially so they wouldn't see that and then partially so they wouldn't see it fade. So it was glorious. There's no doubt about it. But if that ministry of death was glorious, how much more so is the ministry of life? And we're going to see eventually that there's no comparison. You know, when you look at that, you guys remember those glow-in-the-dark bracelets that you get, the ones around your... And you put them in the freezer, Right? I don't know if you, that's the thing that you're supposed to do. And then you put them on and they glow for a while, but eventually they fade, right? If it's not back in the freezer. That's kind of what the, the Moses thing was, right? They were both glorious, but the new is so much more glorious, right? And so there is a comparison, but there's a contrast. Look at uh, verse 9. He says, For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And so the old covenant said, do all these, you know, 612, you know, rules or whatever. And if you don't do it, you're dead. Okay, we're dead. <laughs> right? We're dead. We're doomed. That was the ministry of condemnation. It was glorious. But you know what? Now what? Now the way it works, you guys, and you know this, as you place your faith in Jesus Christ, as you believe in Jesus, then you are righteous. And he's just saying, man, because of that, you're free, you're forgiven. You are imputed with the righteousness of Christ into your account. I mean, how can you compare the two? He says there 
in verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. It was glorious, but when you compare it to this, the fact that I'm free and forgiven, I'm righteous, it's not based on my behavior anymore. Man, there's no comparison. It'd be kind of like if you went camping. You guys ever go camping? How many of you here are going camping with the church? Anyone here? I am so jealous. I wish I could go. I can't go. My wife won't let me. But anyways, that's a different story. Don't tell her I told you. But you know how you go camping, man? And it's pitch black. It's pitch black, right? And so praise God for the flashlights. Amen? I mean, you get a flashlight and you're able, oh, I have to go to the restroom, you know? And you find the restroom, right? And so you got your flashlight and this is glory. It's glorious. But then what happens when the sun rises? I don't need my flashlight anymore. I've got a glorious light all around me. And for whatever reason, people... They go back to the law. They want their, their little flashlight. They want that type of relationship with God. And God is just saying, No, my son, Jesus, died for you. He has come and he has risen. You don't need that little light anymore, right? I mean, there's a ministry of condemnation. There's a ministry of salvation. Look at verse 11. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. I mean, one is temporary, and the other is eternal. I mean, think about that. You know, I mean, he's just saying there's no comparison here. This new relationship will be forever and ever and ever. One is veiled, one is unveiled. Look at verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we have great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, right there in verse 4, it says that the God of this age has blinded them who do not believe. You know, there's a veil over their hearts. You know, for the Christian, the new covenant, the, the veil has been torn in two from top to bottom. There's no veil that separates us. You know, but for those who don't believe, there's still a veil over their eyes. And, and what what Paul is saying right here, we use great boldness of speech. It kind of reminds me of the passage in Hebrews 4.16. Um, not only in preaching, but just in living. He said, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find that grace to help in time of need. You know, the children of Israel, there was a veil that separated. They couldn't see the glory, Right? And, and maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And you're like, well, I don't understand everything. You know, I don't understand the Trinity. Well, I don't understand the Bible. Well, I don't understand this about Christianity. Let me tell you something. You won't understand it until you give your life to Christ. Until you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You won't understand God until you come to Him. 
until you turn to the Lord. You know, when I got saved, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. I grew up in a religion, but I didn't really know a lot. But when, when I got saved, the day that I got saved, all I knew was this. I need God. I need forgiveness. I need Jesus. And I went forward and accepted the Lord as my Savior. And then when I accepted the Lord, the veil was taken away and it was like a light came on. And all of a sudden I could understand. I'm not here by evolution. How, how foolish to think that we're here by accident. That we're here through the process of you know, evolution. Through, we're here by accident. I mean, things just began to open up. You see, when you turn to the Lord, then the veil is taken away. And that's why the first step is you got to come to Jesus, man. For us, there's no veil. Um, and then in verse 17, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You see, in this new ministry, there's a comparison. They're both glorious, but one is just way, way more glorious. And then there's a contrast. First contrast is death and life. Second contrast is condemnation and salvation. Third contrast is one's temporary, one's eternal. Fourth contrast is veiled, unveiled. And the fifth contrast is bondage or liberty. Bondage or liberty. You know, when the, the Judaizers were going to the church in Galatia, they were telling them to go back to religion, go back to Judaism, go back to the law. And Paul fought it tooth and nail, and he said in chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You see, we're free. Isn't that cool, you guys? I mean, when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I mean, I, I know maybe you don't feel different, but you are different. You are forgiven. When God sees you, He doesn't see your sin. You're covered in the righteousness of Christ. You're free. You have been set free, the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. He said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so we're free. You know, but, but the thing is this. We have to use that liberty that we've been given for the Lord. Which kind of leads us to this last verse right here. In verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's interesting. Again, just another evidence of the Trinity. But verse 18, We all with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, it's the ministry of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God has drawn you to Jesus and He saved you. And the Spirit of God is making you more and more like Jesus. You know, when Moses was looking at the Lord, or when the people were looking at the reflection of Moses, it was kind of like an illustration of what would happen in the New Covenant 
You guys, now we can actually go and behold the Lord. You know, when we see it here, it's kind of a plan words. It says beholding right here uh, as in a mirror. And so when you look at the Bible, you're seeing the Lord. And you're saying, wow, look at how He loves sinners. Look at how He likes to eat. You know, whatever, the different things that you're looking about the Lord, man. And you're just looking at the Lord, right? And it's beautiful because the Bible's like a mirror and it shows us that. But it's also, in the original language, it's like a looking glass. How many of you guys have ever looked through a telescope? Microscope? And in one sense, you can kind of when you're studying the Bible, you can look at God that way. And you can even, you know, when I'm exercising, when I'm, you know, whatever, I look at the flowers. Do you guys ever do that? You're outside and you look at the flowers. And even though I don't really like them that much, I still trip out on the birds of paradise, those orange ones. They're kind of scary, huh? <laughs> you know, and, and I, I serious, I look at the flowers and I'm like, and I like, wow, Lord, you are so awesome. I look at his creation. And you're looking at, not that that's the Lord, but you see the glory of the Lord. And you're, you're studying the life of Christ. And you're studying the Bible. And you're studying, man, the way that God is. And, and you're looking at him. 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 And you're not looking at that man. You're not looking at that woman. You're not looking at that situation. You're not looking at that problem. You're not looking at religion. You're not looking at your own performance. You're looking at Him. You're just looking at Him. You just keep looking at Him on the cross, on the throne, in His glory by your side. And you know what the Bible says when you do that? You're becoming more and more like him and that's what I don't know about you but that's what I want you know I thank God that you guys all have your own personalities and some of you here are weird and, and just different you know and you're all uniquely made and it's supposed to be that way but but your character your character has to be like the Lord and you see, the Old Covenant and the, the performance-oriented relationship and the law and legalism, it doesn't transform you. It doesn't change you. But the Lord does. The Spirit of the Lord does. The love of the Lord, it changes you. And I'll be honest with you, in, you know, in, in talking to people, even sometimes in the church, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but sometimes people, they just don't change. They're the same. And I don't know if your goals are too low or if your belief is too small, but man, you know, God has the power to change you, to transform you. And what ends up happening is, it says right here, from glory to glory, little by little, God starts changing you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And when we come to that place, it's this love relationship in our hearts, not on paper, not on stone, but carved in our hearts by the Spirit of God that is just so beautiful. You know, I'm pretty sure you guys have heard the story of the, there was a, a wife, it's commonly told, um, I guess she was married for about 10 years, and then her husband died. 
And so a few years later, uh, she remarried. And what she did was, uh, um, you know, one day she goes up into her attic and, uh, and she's looking through some paperwork and she finds a, a piece of paper that has a list of a whole bunch of things that her first husband told her to do. You know, he would leave her a little list on what to do. You know, pick me up some, you know, carne asada at the meat market and, you know, don't forget to pick up my suit over there and, you know, iron my clothes and whatever, prepare my lunch, make my dinner. I mean, just a list of a whole bunch of things, right? And uh, give me a massage, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and then she, she was looking at the list and then she thought about it. And she said, wow. I mean, I, I did these things for my first husband, but um, I do all these things for my second husband and more. And he never gave me a list. You see, that's what happens when you enter into a love relationship. You don't need a list. You don't need some external thing, you know, imposing, you know, this mechanical, robotic type of action upon you. It's the love relationship. And by the Spirit of God who lives inside of you, you will do more in such a sincere way than you have ever done in your life. And that's really what the Lord is doing, man. He's working in us in that way. So let's pray so we can partake of communion. Lord, I thank you so much for, Lord, your word, and I know I went through it rather fast, but I do pray, Lord, that we would know ministry proof, and Lord, that we would know um, just the, the ministry of the Spirit, Lord. I pray, Father, that you bless your people here today. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. And if you're here today and you want to receive Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, so that you can partake of communion with us, it's so simple. He died for you on the cross. And he rose again the third day. And the Bible says that if you believe in him and you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, then you will be saved. And so I just want you to pray this prayer. If you want to receive the Lord, you pray this prayer after me. Say, Dear Lord, I come to you today and I admit I have sinned, but I turn from my sins. And I accept Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live life as a Christian from this day forward. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.